I hope you'll pray for me that I'll not do anything but honor. The God that we worship, that is so dear to us. I'm going to read the ninth verse of Hebrews, second chapter. But we see Jesus, comma, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, don't get too Arminian on that last part, because John 17 and 2 lets us know that Christ knew exactly who he was going to die for. And that's not enough. Well, turn over to Ephesians about 1 and 3 and 4. And you'll find out he did know everybody that he came to this world to die for. Not only did he know them, his God, and I'm not sure he was down to choosing too, but God chose them. And them three's in cahoots. If you got one, you got all three of them. But the thing that I have thought about this week is the first words but we see Jesus. The first ones that I read about in the Bible that saw Jesus was a bunch of men, shepherds and the likes of that. And, and I don't know much about sheep because we never did have any when I was growing up. I heard Elder Kenneth Martin say one time, them's the dumbest things I ever saw. He said you can let one of them stick his head through a fence and he'll stand there and push until somebody comes and pulls him out. But uh, that's what they were doing and they left their sheep to come and just see a baby. I don't mind telling you. We had four. And I know you mothers know that when they're born they're beautiful to you. And I have to admit they were special to me, but they sure didn't look beautiful. I, I just thinking about Joyce, when Lois and Joyce were born, and she was had to be put in an incubator for 14 days. And now you talk about somebody puny looking, but I can't imagine someone leaving their flock to go look at a baby. And yet God inspired them to do it. That's why. But we see Jesus. I think about when God visited Mary and told her that she was going to have a child. And Joseph, I can't imagine how he must have felt. And yet God appeared to him and not only told him, but made him believe who the father of that child would be. Isn't that amazing? 
made him believe that Mary was going to be the mother of Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, do you believe Jesus Christ was born into this world uh, to Mary over there in that barn in a manger? I want you to know you didn't figure that out by yourself. You had the same help that Joseph had. God revealed that to you. I know he did because Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians about 2.14, The natural man receiveth not the spirit, for it is foolishness to him, neither indeed can he know them, for their spiritual discern. In other words, he ain't got a receiving set. Do you believe Jesus Christ? Excuse me, I may have to take them out of my mouth. Do you believe Jesus Christ came into this world and bled and died on the cross? If you do, it wasn't some long-winded preacher that revealed that to you. God did. Because there's no preacher in the world could do that. If you believe Jesus Christ came, I want you to know you've had a visit from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you ought to join his church and get busy doing the things that he's inspired you to do. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, if he'll accept him, can be a child of God. That's what I was taught before I came to the Baptist church. But the Bible don't teach that. And if that's not enough, first, uh, oh, over in First John 5 and 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus Christ is born of God, and that John 6.29, this is the work of God that you believe on him who is sent. And you know why he told a bunch that? that? They had seen him do miraculous things and they said, show us that we might do the works of God. Isn't that a familiar statement? Bobby's telling me coming up here about some of his yahoos he works with and some of the ideas they have about the Bible. Me and him both know it because we cut our teeth on that stuff. But I'm glad God let me live long enough uh, to find it here on YouTube. I'll find out about the truth of God and to be able to rejoice and enjoy the fellowship of God in going to his house. And not only that, getting with brethren who can agree on what God's word says. But we see Jesus. You know, we don't see Jesus as one who uh, offered salvation or uh, said if you'll do this or that or thus or so, uh, you can be a child of God. Uh, we worship a Jesus that did the work, and if he didn't do it, God and, God and the Holy Ghost did. But Jesus did the work that God sent him into this world to do. And you know what that work was? To pay the sin debt. Can you imagine Steve Woods being without sin in the eyes of God? He is. And every <laughs> excuse me, child of God that is born of the Spirit in God's eyes are sinless because he looks at them through Jesus Christ. Does that mean we won't sin? No. We will. <coughs> May have to sell this water. Brother Ray used to say it didn't take much water to run a windmill. But I want you to know that not only 
did Joseph believe? But when uh, Mary went down to visit her friend Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and he wasn't born, and she told him about the visit she'd had from God. And they rejoiced. And not only that, John leaped for joy while in his mother's womb. I don't know when he was born of the Spirit of God, but I, he may have started out that way, but I'm convinced of one thing. He was born of the Spirit of God before Mary went down to visit Elizabeth. You know, I don't know when I was born spiritually either. I don't even know when I was born naturally. Do you? I don't think so. And of course, I was raised with the people that told me that you're on safe ground until you get to where you're 12 years of age and then look out. But I know one thing. I figured out I was a sinner before then. I tell you, I read in John all about 1 and 29. I kind of like to look through the four Gospels and every chapter I can find that's got 1 and 29 that I like to read it. But at 129, John the Baptist had been preaching the Gospel. And he looked out one day and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Was that the first time that John recognized Jesus? You just stop and think. Uh, he, I can't imagine someone is, with the dignity that he had uh, walking around uh, most of the time that no one knew who he was. We had that episode when he was 12, and uh, they went up to Jerusalem to pay the tithes and things that they had to pay at the kingdom, at the church, or to pay the bishops and all of that. And then Joseph started home, and they traveled one day, and lo and behold, Jesus wasn't with them. And they turned around to go back to find him. And it took them three days to find him. Isn't that a typical of, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I lose things, it takes me three times as long to find as it did me to lose it. But when they found him, this 12-year-old was standing before all the bishops and the dignitaries in the church house, and they were amazed at the things that he was saying. And lo and behold, Joseph walked up to him and said some things to him, and Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. I've got some uh, World Publishing Company Bibles, and I don't know how much, but somebody must have done some studying on it. They have a, a date at the beginning of every chapter. And from age 12 until about close to 30 years of age, 
We don't see anything in the Bible about Jesus. Can you imagine the King of Kings and Lord of Lords living in that condition? I just think that when I grew up, that Brother Steve and Brother Bernie picked me up and we went down to Blue Mountain. And I was telling them we come through Greenwood that uh, Greenwood was the county seat of Sebastian County. I thought it was interesting in 1968 when that tornado came through and blew it away. They wanted to change the county seat since they had a courthouse in Fort Smith from Greenwood to Fort Smith. But it took a constitutional amendment to change it. And the only county that wanted to do that was Sebastian County, so they couldn't get it done. They had to build that courthouse back. But think of all the things that Jesus did. I got this from my older brother one time. And I said, you know, Jesus never did have the experience of having a family to look after. My brother said, yes, he did too. He said, do you ever stop and think that after you read about Joseph up there when he was in the temple, that we don't read about Joseph anymore. It's just Jesus and Mary. And I thought about that. He said, you know what? He had to be the head of the family. And the Bible says he was tempted in all counts, that's his way. You know, that's something to think about. Tempted on all counts, such as we. In other words, everything we've been tempted with in this world, he was tempted with. And yet, he continued to be the God, the Son of God, that you and I are here tonight to worship. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus as a complete Savior. I'm glad to sat away. I'm real glad to sat away because that tells me that I have that hope. By the way, don't forget Colossians 1.27. For it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I don't know anybody big enough to get him out, do you? I know that John the Baptist had trouble when he was over there in the jailhouse and uh, he got to wondering, even though in, in uh, John 1.29, he looked and saw uh, Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God. I'm convinced that Jesus revealed himself to him when he saw him coming. But when he got in the jailhouse, uh, he got to feeling so bad, he wondered if he'd even come in contact uh, with uh, this Jesus Christ. And he said, Go ask if he's a Christ, or are we to look for another one? And they did. And Jesus never did say, yeah, I'm him. He didn't say, yeah, I think I'm. You can go back and tell him. You don't have to worry. He just began to perform miracles, didn't he? When he got through doing it, he said, go back and tell John again. Oh, by the way, Jesus said there's none greater than John. And then in another place I read where he said, he that is in the kingdom of God is greater than John. You know what that tells me? If you're in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the eyes of God, you're greater than John. 
And Jesus said there's none greater. I'm going to mind telling you, if you're in the church of God and trying to do like God would have you to do, uh, you're in good hands with the good hands people. She and Roebuck can take their sign down. Because you're in the hands of God. That's why I guess you're not as honored as I am. I need to go to church pretty often so I can be reminded of the goodness of God and may uh, be made to feel that, hey, you know what? Uh, they're talking about me. I'm embraced in that love. And I'm embraced, embraced in that Savior. But we see Jesus. We see Jesus. I was told when I first started trying to get up, stay out of the book of Revelation till you get your feet on the ground. And I've never quite got my feet on the ground yet. But there's one thing I like about Revelations, and then I'm going to sit down and see. Over there in the last part of Revelations, John the Revelator writes and says, Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I hope that we conduct ourselves in such a way in this area that we'll have a church and have the relationship and feeling we have now when that day comes and he comes back. Boy, won't there be some shout? Come on. That's, uh, that's what I like to hear about is Jesus. Um, you know, sometimes when we look at Jesus, we see a little baby, and sometimes we look and we see a, a man on the cross paying for our sins, and sometimes we see a king coming back from heaven to take his people home. We see a, a lot of pictures of Jesus in our mind's eye and our eye of faith, as they say. And uh, There's a picture of him in John 17, Brother Cal made reference to John 17 too. It's interesting trying to picture this for me because... Uh, I've always had difficulty seeing uh, seeing rightly the uh, the Trinity. I know what the Bible teaches about it, and uh, I believe what the Bible teaches about it. I believe that. God is the Father, and God is the Son, and God is the Holy Ghost. I believe that Jesus is is God. I believe the Father is God. I believe the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, I believe there's one God. 
and uh, it's always been uh, somewhat puzzling to me seeing Jesus in the garden praying to the Father. Seeing Jesus, though, here, uh, who was at the same time fully God and fully man. But especially, I believe, in his humanity, we see him here in the garden, knowing, as he did all things, knowing what was coming up shortly after the sun comes up on the morrow. John 17, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus was doing some seeing here too. He, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and this this word eyes is where we get our word ophthalmology. It's, it's ophthalmos. And it's, it's not just about pupils and, and eyelids. It's about vision. Jesus was going home. Jesus loved the people that he had been exposed to here. Jesus loved the people that he came to die for. Jesus had been with the people that the Father had given him, at least a portion of them, the, those who were living here at that time. Jesus had been there with them. And when he came to the tomb of Lazarus, you know, he cried. And I'm not going to, Supposed to tell you that I know why he cried because I certainly don't. But I know he cried. I know Jesus wept. I know Jesus had a lot of good reasons to weep. One good reason was because Mary and Martha's hearts were torn wide open because their brother lay dead in the tomb four days. Both of them knowing that had he come when he was first called for, he could have prevented it. Okay? Now, he knew that they knew that. And he also knew that he had a bigger reason not to than the reason to heal him. He knew that he was sent to glorify the Father. So, so when he comes, he's got many reasons to weep. But I'm going to tell you that I know that he wept out of love. You could say specifically about this or that, but I know that he wept because he loved us human beings. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, <clears throat> Father, the hour is come. I don't know if you listened to Brother Sonny last Sunday morning. We usually don't get to, but <clears throat> due to circumstances, we were, we were able to hang around here in town long enough that we got to listen to, to Brother Sonny on the way to Missouri. And <clears throat> he spoke about the different hours of the Bible. And this hour here was not a 60-minute period of time. It was simply 
it was at that point in time that he was to accomplish what he was sent here to accomplish, and that was to save his people from their sins. Not to come and make salvation possible for anybody who would <clears throat> jump through the hoops to do it. <clears throat> but he came to save his people from their sins, and the hour was, was come. He said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. <clears throat> Can you imagine the, the meaning of that prayer? <clears throat> Just, you know, to bring glory is to bring laud and honor and praise to one and what he's saying here basically is, Father, give me glory so that I can give you glory. Now, first of all, <clears throat> it was impossible for him to weasel out of this deal. I, I want that to be understood. He had made a promise, and he was the impeccable God, and God cannot lie. It didn't say God will not lie. It says God cannot lie. It is not within the nature of God, and Jesus was fully God. It is not within his nature to commit a falsehood. He cannot lie, and he promised before the foundation of the world that he was going to save his people from their sins. But in his humanity, here he is praying that the Father would help him to, to have the strength that he could accomplish this task that he was sent to do. Now that would glorify him. But in his obedience and in saving all of those that the Father had given him, he would glorify his Father with a glory that was previously unknown to mankind. You understand what I'm trying to get at here is there's, there's no way that, <clears throat> that anything that we do could, could uh, add to the glory of God. God's glory is infinite. His glory is is beyond description. But in doing these things, they bring glory and honor to him who is all glorious. He's saying, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. And then we get to this verse that Brother Cal alluded to in the second verse. As thou hast given him power. Now is this the kind of power that is like the power to lift a glass, ability, or is it the power like authority? Yes. Yes, it is. Because you see, when he says all power, then that includes all power. Now, <clears throat> what puzzles me is how many times I read this verse and it never occurred to me that I denied that when I felt like I had power to accept him or reject him, that I had power to do something to be saved or not to be saved. Because if I have any power at all, he doesn't have all power. Now, he's got power over all flesh. If he doesn't have the power to save me or not, then I'm not flesh. Because he's got power over all flesh. But I know I'm flesh. I wish I had power over just this flesh. You can have power over your flesh, but if I just had power over this flesh where I could do the works that would please my Father in heaven and avoid doing the works that would displease and dishonor him, 
how much joy would I experience in life. As thou hast given him power. You know, there is, there is no difference in the uh, eternal nature of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. They are completely equal in their, in their substance, if you will let me say it that way. But in their offices, we clearly have a distinction here when we, we say that the Father is the first person in the Trinity. We say that because the Son was given power from the Father. He says, Father, as thou hast given him, and he's speaking of himself here in the second person, he's saying, as thou, Father, hast given me, the Son, him, the Son, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. It's interesting when you think of the term life. <clears throat> in order to give life to something, it has to not have life. I mean, that seems so plain and simple to me now. But he's talking about eternal life here. So anybody that doesn't have eternal life, he could give them eternal life. Now, he's only going to give it to those that the Father has given him. The Father has given him power to give eternal life to as many as were given to him in the eternal covenant of grace. But all of those who do not have eternal life, I mean all of those that he's going to give eternal life to, must by necessity not already have eternal life. Eternal life, like natural life, is not something that you can refuse. Because if you didn't have natural life, how could you refuse life? And by the same token, if you don't have eternal life, you don't have the power to refuse eternal life. Not that anyone would. I mean, it seems almost nonsensical to even be having this discussion. But he says, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's how many will be in heaven. Right there is your number of the occupants of heaven, right there. How many will be in heaven? As many as the Father gave him. Just exactly that many, not one more, not one less. And this is life eternal. That they might know thee. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. There's an old saying, it's not what you know, but who you know. Now, it's never had more meaning than it does right now. Now, that's a true statement. Have you ever thought about what knowing God means? Right here. Knowing God. When you pray, do you ever stop and listen? Now, this is the hard part for me. I mean, imagine having a friend that would talk to you all the time, and as soon as he got through talking, just turn around and leave. <clears throat> Imagine being married to a, a bride, and you go into the bedroom, and she talks and talks and talks and talks, and is the last, 
last word out of her mouth, she flips the light switch off and rolls over and goes to sleep. And you never get a chance to say anything. I'm going to tell you that's the way some of my prayers have been. That I would just talk and talk and talk to God and it primarily would consist of begging and begging and begging God. And I would never just sit there and listen to see if he wanted to say something back to me. You know he does. I'm not going to say that you're going to hear an audible voice. But you oftentimes, if you just, and try me on this, if you haven't, just test me. Test me. If you haven't been involved in two-way conversations with God, just sit and listen. See if you can't get an impression. Feel like you get, you know, people say that they get an answer from God. Does it always have to be in the form of something happened? I mean, I've had some immediate answers from God. I've had immediate healings from God. God has been so personal in my life, I couldn't not believe in God. I, I, it's just happened too many times with me and with my son in, in particular things and, and different things that have happened in my life. You couldn't persuade me that there's no God. You could try all day long and you couldn't persuade me. You know, this scripture then gives me more assurance than is imaginable. It says that to know him is eternal life. In other words, if you know God, if you have a personal relationship with God, and even if you haven't listened to see if he wants to talk back, if you've had a personal relationship with God, and if you've prayed to him and you believe that he's heard you, you know him. If you know him in a way that you have had experiences where you know he dealt with you, you know him. And to know him is eternal life. And if it's eternal life, if it's eternal, it certainly can't be taken away. You know, people want to talk about they can do things to get eternal life and they can do things to lose it. Now, I don't want to be unkind, but if you can lose eternal life, it wasn't eternal in the first place. It defies the very definition of the word. The Bible never speaks about having eternal life in prospect, as one very popular church teaches, that the Bible says... In so many places, over and over and over, <clears throat> John 3.35 comes to mind. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. Believe, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, I want to tell you what the world believes that this verse says that it doesn't say. All you got to do is add one word, little two-letter words, all you got to add here to get this verse completely misunderstood. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not in the Son shall not see life. There's not an N in there at sentence. You see... He that believeth not the Son hasn't heard the Son, hasn't heard the life-giving voice of the Son of God. And I'm going to tell you, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. We're not talking about time salvation when we're talking about the wrath of God abiding on you. We're talking about eternal salvation. 
eternal salvation is what results in eternal life. <clears throat> that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The one who is sent is of necessity subservient to the sender. You papas that have ever sent your son to go do something know who's the boss. You employers who have sent employees to go and do something for you know who's in charge. Now as Brother Cal so aptly stated, when you've got the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost doing something, these guys are in cahoots. They certainly are. They are all in agreement on what they're doing. It's not like Jesus didn't really want to do this, but the Father has power over him, so he made him do it. That's not it at all. What it is about is that there are offices in the Godhead. There's an order in all things. It's just like in, in nature. You see the creation of God. You see order. There's order in everything. <clears throat> to know God is eternal life. What I want you to see tonight in this scripture is that the Son of God is praying to his Father to glorify him so that he can glorify the Father. And in so doing, there's a purpose in this, and that is that we might know him. You know, Paul said it like this, that I might know thee and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. He said that I might know thee. He said, and that's the most important thing to Paul. And it ought to be the most important thing to you and to me. The most important thing in life is to know God. To know God is eternal life. Knowing God does not accomplish eternal life. You getting to know God doesn't accomplish eternal life. No, that's not it at all. The very fact that you'd be interested in a relationship with God because you see the wicked don't seek after God. That God is not in all their thoughts. In other words, you could search through all their thoughts and God's not there because they don't have God in their thoughts. They don't want God in their thoughts. If you talk about God, they don't want to talk to you. But if God is in your thoughts, then you're not among that number. If you have a desire to know God, it's because He first loved you. If He loved you and, and now you know Him, then you have eternal life. But what I hope that we can see in this scripture, let me read this to you one more time and see if you can get the import. Now what he's talking about here, he's in the garden. He knows he's going to the cross on the next day. He knows that legally, from a legal standpoint, when Adam fell, we all were separated from God. The death in trespasses and sins that Adam accomplished by that first sin that was passed on to all his posterity as our federal head, he made the choice for all of us that we were doomed forever. Now we have a new federal head coming. And he's making the choice for all of those 
whom the Father gave him. And it's going to accomplish something. And Jesus tells us what, what it is that he's going to accomplish. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee. You know, he came into the world. We sang that song that he came down and bled and died. Oh, we sang praise to our Redeemer's glorious name because he came down and bled and died for the specific purpose that we might know him. And knowing him is eternal life. He came down that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You know how we know God? We know him through Christ, our mediator. You know, we don't have a right. We don't have a, a method. We don't have an understanding. We don't have, we don't have communicable skills to speak to God. We don't, except through Jesus Christ, our mediator. You know, in the old, under the Old Covenant, there's many types and shadows here. But one of them is that you don't go to God, you go to the high priest. And he takes his prayers for you. There's a beautiful prophecy in John 1 and 77 of the, of the prophet John the Baptist. Brother Cal referred to John the Baptist. But there's a prophecy in here that he was going to come and give knowledge of salvation through the remission of sins. You know what he came preaching? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The prophecy of John the Baptist was that he would come and bring knowledge, not salvation. John never brought salvation to anybody. John baptized and baptized. I don't know any old Baptist preacher that baptized more than John did. There's been, there was an article in Brother, uh, Brother Mark's paper today about some dear elder who had baptized 800. Well, that's probably a one day's work for John the Baptist. It was a lifetime for this preacher. Yeah. I bet, I, I, I would. I, I would venture to say there were days John the Baptist baptized 800 people. The apostles came close to it because there was only 11 of them on active duty at the time, I think, maybe 12. Well, it said Peter stood with the 11 and preached, and they baptized 5,000 on the day of Pentecost. Now, I'm going to tell you, none, none but the uh, apostles were doing any baptizing that day. <clears throat> That's five or 600 apiece. That's right. They baptized 5,000, and if that was 5,000 was like the 5,000 that Jesus fed, they were just counting men, and then no telling how many women and children they baptized too, in addition to that. So they might have all baptized 1,000 that day. Don't you know their arms will give out? <laughs> but now just for a moment, I want you to think about John bringing knowledge of salvation.